So it's a joy to be here with you all. Um, as you know, uh, Isaac is, is up in Gig Harbor covering our pulpit, so it's great to have this, this pulpit exchange and fellowship with other like-minded churches. Well, this morning what I'd like to do is... In our congregation, both the men and the women are going through the book, A Strange New World, uh, written by Carl Truman. Uh, He's a pastor professor in the OPC, and it's been a very helpful book, just helping us understand what's going on in culture. And one of the main topics or ideas that he covers in that book is this topic or idea of uh, expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. And he argues that that is the way in which many in our culture understand themselves or understand their sense of identity. And so this morning, I'd like, I'd like us just to spend some time considering, discussing this, this idea of expressive individualism, um, ways in which we see it present in our culture, ways in which we as Christians are complicit in this cultural mindset, and then also just think a little bit about how we should think of our ourselves according to scripture. But before we dive in, I'd like us just to, to pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon us in, in this next hour or so. So let's pray. Uh, merciful Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the Lord's day, the day in which you have made, a uh, day in which you have set aside for both worship and rest. We ask that you bless your people this morning, bless our consideration, discussion upon, upon this topic. We pray that we would glean much wisdom from it and that you would use it to continue to conform us to the image of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, whenever we dive into a consideration on on culture or what's going on in culture, I think it's important for us to establish, first of all, what our mindset should be as we consider culture, especially a secular culture. And that's no news to any of us. We live as Christians in the midst of a very secular culture. And so I'd like to read two verses from 1 Peter chapter 4. So you can either turn there in your Bibles, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2. You can either turn there in your Bibles or you can listen along. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. I think what Peter is saying here is very helpful and instructive to us when it comes to what our cultural or what our mindset should be as we engage a secular culture, as we think about a secular culture, as we live in the midst of a secular culture. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. So Peter says this, beginning in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Um... So I'd like to stop there. So notice that Peter here is, is referring to these new covenant Christians, uh, these elect exiles, he says earlier. And he refers to them as sojourners and exiles. He says that is their identity as new covenant Christians who live in the midst of a very pagan world. Of course, in the first century, Christians did not have a whole lot of cultural clout. Uh, they were a marginal sect in the midst of a very broad and big uh, Greco-Roman pagan world. And so he refers to them in this context as sojourners and exiles. Another way you could render sojourner is a pilgrim. 
Now, when you think about the Old Testament as, as the background to what Peter is saying here, what are some, or what is, who is the archetypal pilgrim in the Old Testament? When you think of Old Testament pilgrims, Abraham, exactly. He really is the one who comes to the, uh, rises to the top. Abraham is that archetypal paradigmatic pilgrim. When you read about him in, in, in Genesis, you see that you know, he was a, a stranger in a land that was not his own. You see that he had to actually make peace treaties and covenants with other pagan kings. Kings who didn't worship the same God that he worshipped. Um, kings who at times had a different ethic than he had, but yet he had to engage with them in a peaceful manner. And so we should think of Abraham. Abraham is that paradigmatic figure for us as New Covenant Christians. Now, when you think about the Old Testament and exiles, who comes to mind? Moses. Moses. Joseph. Joseph. Daniel. Daniel. Exactly. Yes. Um, yeah, there are many pictures of exile. I think the, the, the main picture is when Israel is in exile in Babylon. So the book of Daniel records this time period. Uh, Jeremiah speaks about this time period. In fact, in Jeremiah 20, uh, 29, the prophet, or God through the prophet, urges Israel, who is now in Babylon, to get married, build homes, plant trees, seek the welfare of Babylon, but to never forget that their true homeland resides in Jerusalem, in the promised land. And you think of Daniel. Uh, Daniel was living in Babylon. He was educated in Babylon. He served uh, in the government of, of Babylon, but yet he remained devoted to Yahweh. He remained devoted to his identity as an Israelite, as a Jew, as a fear of God. And so when Peter here is urging New Covenant Christians to think of themselves as exiles, he has in mind both Abraham and Israel in Babylon. Now notice what Peter doesn't allude to. He does not allude to Israel in the Holy Land. That is not our paradigm. Israel in the Holy Land is not our paradigm for the New Covenant. When Israel was in the Holy Land, they were living in a theocracy, and they were foreshadowing Christ's second coming, when Christ will cleanse this earth from all that which is unholy and bring in that new creation. And so we are to think of ourselves as pilgrims and as exiles, not as Israel in the Holy Land. In fact, one of the ways you can think of the Reformation is a recovery of what Peter is saying here. Because slowly within the medieval church, the church began to think of themselves as Israel in the Holy Land. Uh, the pastor became a priest. Simple, unadorned worship in homes or in other spaces was replaced with worship in an opulent temple cathedral. The Lord's Supper, a celebration uh, with our risen Christ, was replaced with a sacrifice of Christ on an altar, much like the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Um, the cathedral looked like the temples of the Old Testament. So you saw that, that the medieval church began to see themselves as Israel in the Holy Land. And one of the things that the reformers sought to recover is what Peter is saying here. We're not Israel in the Holy Land. We're exiles. We're pilgrims. 
And so we live in the midst of this culture, we live in the midst of this age, but yet we have to remember that our fundamental identity resides in the age to come. Our fundamental identity resides in the fact that we're citizens of heaven, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. This means that this dual identity comes with a bit of tension as we live in the midst of this age, this culture, but yet we are to remember that our ultimate home is in heavenly Jerusalem. It's not easy. It comes with a lot of gray, a lot of questions, a lot of perplexing situations and scenarios, but yet we are called to grow in wisdom. So we are pilgrims and exiles, and therefore as we engage a secular culture, we do so seeking to grow in this pilgrim mindset, this pilgrim mindset. This is not our home. Our hope does not reside in this present creation. Well, you'll notice that that Peter continues on. He says in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I find it very instructive how Peter assumes that these exiles, these pilgrims, these New Covenant Christians will be spoken of as evildoers by the the pagan Gentiles. And we find ourselves in, in, uh, in a very similar place today. We, as conservative Christians, are oftentimes labeled evildoers. We are the ones who are unloving. We are the ones who are hateful. We are the ones who are bigots. And Peter assumes anticipates that this will happen. You will be spoken of as evildoers. But yet, in verse 12, what does Peter urge these Christians to do nevertheless? What does he urge them to do? In verse 12, what does he urge them to do as they're spoken of as evildoers? Exactly, keep their conduct honorable. Or to put it another way, to pursue virtue. And what is the great hope or result or purpose of pursuing virtue while we are labeled evildoers? Notice that the the end of verse 12. To glorify God, God, which then hopefully will lead to these pagan Gentiles glorifying God on the day of visitation, meaning their conversion. So Peter is saying that our virtuous conduct in the midst of Babylon— in the midst of a secular age, will serve as a platform to sow gospel seed, to give a defense of the hope that lies within us to those who don't know the Lord. And thus, as we engage a secular culture, as we think about a secular culture, we are to grow in our pilgrim mindset, and we are to pursue virtue. Pursue virtue, even when we are spoken of as evildoers, so that our virtuous conduct may serve as a platform to sow gospel seed into the hearts and lives of those around us. And as we pursue virtue, I think it's really important that uh, when we look at culture, we first sweep in front of our our own door before we we go and, and try to get Uh, get in the ring of of the various cultural wars that exist in our current day and age. You know, you think about the Ten Commandments. You know, the first commandments, 
really stand for worship, corporate worship. The first commandment answers the who of worship. We are to worship God alone. The second and third commandments answer the how of worship. We are to worship God as he reveals, as he tells us to worship him in his word. The third commandment further answers that how question as it tells us that we are to worship God with reverent language. And then the fourth commandment talks about the when of worship, the Lord's Day. Again, it's very easy for us to, to talk about how, how so many Christians have it backwards when it comes to worship. Progressive Christianity or, or just kind of evangelicalism that's kind of fluffy. But how much do we focus on our own membership within our own local church? How much do we focus upon being faithful to the membership vows that we have affirmed and have professed to live according to? Again, it's really easy to talk about those people out there, but it's a lot more difficult when we start sweeping in front of our own door. Think of the Sixth Commandment. It's really easy for us to talk about the evils of abortion, and yes, abortion is evil, but it's a lot more difficult to actually help and serve the families in our own communities who are broken because abortions were not had. Think of the Seventh Commandment. It's really easy to speak about how crazy the sexual revolution is in our day and age, transgenderism, gender identity, and all of these various things. It's a lot more difficult to kick that pornography habit, to pursue purity within our own relation, within our own marriage, and actually to love and serve our spouse on an ordinary Tuesday afternoon. Think about the Eighth Commandment. It's easy to wax eloquently about our preferred economic policy and the evils of socialism. It's a lot more difficult to be generous with our own finances. And so, again, Scripture urges us to sweep in front of our own door, to take the log out of our own eye before we go and get in the ring of of these various culture wars. And that's very important for us as conservative Christians as we seek to wisely pursue virtue in the midst of, of this present culture. We begin with ourselves and then we go out to think about what's going on in our culture. So we are a pilgrim people. We are a pilgrim people who are called to pursue virtue by first taking the log out of our own eye. And uh, related to this, again, there are really two, two attitudes we can have. You have the attitude of the Pharisees. Uh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. It's very easy for us to do that. Or we can have the attitude of the disciples when Jesus was talking about how one of them would end up betraying him. And what did the disciples ask? Is it I, Lord? And that's the question we should ask. How am I complicit in the, the dominant cultural mindset of our day and age, the spirit of our age? How am I complicit? Is it I, Lord? Because we all, we all are complicit. Every Christian in every age is complicit to a certain degree with the dominant um, mindset of that time period. And the same is true of us. And so is it I, Lord? Are we complicit? Well, what is expressive individualism then? Well, in uh, in his book, uh, Dr. Truman gives sort of a threefold definition. And he, he argues that this is the main way in which many people in our day and age think about themselves, think about their identity, think about the telos of life, the meaning of who they are in this created world. Expressive individualism. And a three-part definition to this category is, first of all, the expressive individualist 
grants ultimate authority to one's inner feelings. So the expressive individualist grants ultimate authority to one's inner feelings. The second step is that the expressive individualist seeks to give outward expression or social expression to those inner feelings. And this is how one defines authenticity. Authenticity is giving social or outward expression to one's inner feelings. You know, I, I remember uh, talking to someone in, in the community who was not a, not a, a believer and uh, invited them to church. And this person said, well, I just couldn't be authentic if I went to your church. Right? I couldn't express my inner feelings at your church. So authenticity is described as outward or social expression to one's inward feelings. So that's the second step. The third step to expressive individualism, the third part of this definition, is that the expressive individualist um, expects institutions, people, and all external authorities to affirm them in their inward feelings and outward expressions. So the expressive individualist expects all institutions, individuals, and external authorities to affirm him or her in in his or her inward feelings and outward expression. So again, the expressive individualist gives ultimate authority to one's inner feelings. The expressive individualist desires to, to give outward or social expression to their inner feelings and thus be authentic. And then the expressive individualist expects to be affirmed in his or her inner feelings and outward expression by all external institutions, people, and authorities. And Truman argues that this is the main way in which we as moderns think of ourselves. And he, he contrasts this with how people thought of identity or thought of themselves in past eras in Western history. And so you think of the classical period, the Greco-Roman period. And uh, in this period, individuals largely thought of themselves in their participation with the polis, with the city. So insofar as someone had participation in the city, that's how they found their identity. So their identity was given by some external norm, namely the city. Then with the dawn of Christendom in the 5th century or so, people found their identity in their participation in the life of the church. So again, their identity was given from some external norm, authority, or institution. Then with, in the industrial period, people largely found their identity in their vocation and their ability to earn a living wage for their family. But now we find our identity not by some external authority or external institution, but by our inner psychological feelings. And one way you can illustrate this is if, if I were to ask anybody here who works a job or has a calling in life, which is all of us, whether or not you like your job, I would wager a bet that most of you would talk about personal satisfaction, fulfillment, a sense of, of meaning, doing something purposeful. 
Now, Truman talks about how if he were to ask his grandfather, who was a factory worker in the UK in the 1950s, if his grandfather liked his job, he wouldn't talk about personal satisfaction or fulfillment at all. It would be all about whether or not his job could provide bread on the table and shirts on the backs of his children. If it did that, then he liked his job. But today, everybody evaluates most things in life through whether or not it's personally satisfying and fulfilling and if it meets their passions, their inward passions in life. And so this is expressive individualism. And so based on this definition, just on the top of your head, do you, do you see any evidence of expressive individualism in, in our culture at large? Yes, transgenderism, I think that's the low-hanging fruit here. That, that's a really easy one. You have uh, you know, people who, uh, uh, you know, a, a man thinks that he's in a woman's body. He has this feeling that he's the opposite gender, and therefore he needs to give social expression to those feelings and expects every external norm, authority, and institution to affirm him in his inward feelings and outward expression. Now, it's really interesting when you think about how therapy has changed over over the, the decades and centuries. In, in past eras, uh, when someone went to a therapist or a priest or a pastor, typically the problem was that one's inward feelings were out of line with objective reality. And so the goal of therapy was to conform one's inward feelings to objective reality. Now things have, have flipped. People come in to the therapist's office today, and the same issue is, is present. One's inward feelings is, 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 um, is uh, in contradiction to objective reality. But rather than trying to conform one's inward feelings to objective reality, what happens? We seek to change objective reality to conform to one's inward feelings. Now, we're not completely logically consistent here because I've yet... To, to meet a therapist who, who, would, who, who, who would treat a depressed person who wants to take his life and say, yeah, just go ahead and do that. Change objective reality to meet your inward feelings and take your life. Your life is not worth living, so let's change all external norms to meet, to meet that inward feeling. We haven't done that, but logically there really is no reason why we shouldn't do that. Uh, we do that with transgenderism. So you can see how therapy has changed. In past eras, it was about changing our inward feelings to conform with what's true, with what's objectively real, and now we're seeking to change objective norms to conform with our inward feelings. So transgenderism is a, is a great example. Any other examples that come to mind? Trigger warnings. Trigger warning. Yeah, safe spaces on okay. college campuses. Yes. Right. That's a great example, especially when it comes to that third part of, of, of the definition, trying to, you know, institutions merely exist to affirm, uh, to be a platform for self-expression, and we see that in so many different institutions. Yes? We read a book recently that talked about uh, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and at the top of which is self-actualization, and it was speaking about how... just how that has crept into our thinking. So almost in everything that we do, we, we tend to think of being the person that we were meant to be or being, you know, fulfilling 
our ultimate possibility you know, kind of with everything, with work, with who we are as people, with, you know, every decision I make needs to make me happy. You know, if I'm not happy in my marriage, well, I can just get divorced. Mm -hmm. I wasn't meant to be with this person. I was meant to be happy. And so obviously I should be with somebody else. And, you know, you just see it in everything almost. Yeah. Yeah, I think marriage is a good, a good example, too, because in past eras, um, you know, the way people in previous generations thought about marriage, it was more about finding someone who could help you as an individual perform a social good of raising a family and raising the next generation. And I don't think people in past generations had so much angst about, about finding a spouse. It was, okay, you're an adult, you're maybe in your early 20s, you find someone in your life who shares the same faith as you, who's, who, who's virtuous, um, someone that you're generally attracted to, and you get married. And, you're all, and then marriage is really about the duties that you each have as husband and wife so that you can perform an outward social good of raising a family. But now the pendulum's completely shifted to the other direction. And now people view finding a spouse and a partner in marriage as all about finding someone who's going to make me personally and psychologically happy and fulfilled. And when that's your sole determiner of finding a spouse, no wonder why it's pushed off. Because who can meet that need? Who out there will make you personally happy and fulfilled every day of your life? And so there's so much pressure in finding this perfect soulmate who's going to meet all of your needs. And then, again, there's no, there's, uh, no surprise that you see the, the divorce rates. So again, if that is the way in which two spouses in a marriage are viewing that relationship, well, that's not going to go very well. Um, and so I think we see it in marriage and in, 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 in why marriage is being pushed off so much because we're wanting to find someone who's going to fulfill me. Yes? Yeah. But I, I have, I think, the way that we can't escape this as well is that we all, to some degree, at some point or another, put how we feel about what we even see out in the culture as the highest concern. Therefore, we exalt it in our minds as a state. We express it amongst ourselves. We have our comments and our criticisms. And therefore, we look for that same sort of affirmation. And we expect the people groups that we run it to affirm these things. Right. right. Yeah. Coming into not just the church generally, because we tend to do that as well. Like, oh, the liberal church. Right. I think that even in reformed churches, that this has touched us. I would totally agree, and that's that's kind of where I was wanting to head. Is we are complicit in this, and so even to put that back upon you guys, when you think about. This, this idea of expressive individualism. It, again, it's really easy to, to pick the transgenderism or you know, the safe spaces or, or how a lot of our secular culture views marriage. It's, it's easy to, to attack those examples. But what about us? What about conservative Christians? Are we complicit in this mindset? There's compromise everywhere. And there are things that as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, we cannot compromise. 
such mm -hmm. as a guy saying, I'm a girl, and you better call me a girl. We've, we want to be sensitive to some of this nonsense that these people hold to, but we can't compromise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. I feel like it's definitely crept into our, it's taken root in our families too. I think. Yeah. When you were describing that, it makes me think a lot of the stuff that we really struggle with in our kids is that mindset of, you know, it's me. Or can I go play now? Can I do this thing and that I want to do? And have to ask where, where they learned that. Right. You know, they're probably repeating our sins. But I yeah. think we see that, just that, that selfish mindset of, yeah. Yeah. Tribalism's become like this thing that's just promoted in every marketing demographic now. Mm-hmm. Leaching into every advertisement. So you're constantly getting bombarded with find your tribe and if they're outside your tribe then exclude them or hate them or whatnot. Even more so now, I think even when we were kids in the eighties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great example of tribalism. Yeah, I think when it comes to how we're complicit, what, what, what comes to mind for me when, it, when, when we're trying to, like, okay, sweep in front of our own doorstep as conservative Reformed Christians, you know, I, I think there are really two ways people view the church. People either view the church as a platform for individual self-expression or as a vehicle for transformation. And one thing that has been really surprising for me as a church planter, is how many conservative Christians, those who are conservative politically, those who are conservative theologically, view the church as a platform for individual self-expression. They view the church the same way the liberals that they hate view every other institution in our society. You know, so what does it look like to view the church as a platform for individual self-expression? Well, it really views the church as merely a gathering of sovereign individuals. Yes, I'll show up to church, but I don't really want to become a member of a church. I don't want to be told what to do, what to think, what to believe. I don't want elders who have authority over me, even albeit it's limited authority that's, that's bounded by our confessional documents. Um, and, and so what is the church then? The church really is just a place for individuals to gather and give expression to their esoteric views and opinions, if it's maybe a reformed context, or religious experiences. And so they value going to church, but they value going to the church not as a vehicle of transformation to be molded and discipled and shaped, but they value going to church as a sovereign individual so that they can give outward expression to their esoteric opinions, views, and beliefs, and religious experiences. And these sort of people are, go from church to church to church to church, and if they're not affirmed in their esoteric opinions, beliefs, and views, then they just go on to the next church until, until they can be affirmed in their, in their views. And as a church planner, I've, I've realized that I think church plans, especially early on, can tend to attract individuals like that because it's a, it's a fledging little institution. Uh, those individuals can, can begin to think that they can't have a hand on the steering wheel. But once they realize that, no, we're, we're, we're a part of a historic tradition and some of these things aren't going to change, then it's on to the next church. And they give outward expression to their uh, individual views. So I think that's really prevalent. And arguably, I would say that churches that don't hold to the third mark of the church, 
you know, our Belgic confession, um, our Belgic confession um, talks about the three marks of the church, the, the preaching of the word, the right administration, the sacraments, and, and Christian discipline. And churches that don't have that third mark of the church, meaning they don't have elders who are set apart, ordained to shepherd a set amount of people, and then people who, or any mechanism in place for membership, for, to create a meaningful relationship with a local church. If churches don't have that, it's hard to see how those churches are not merely a gathering of sovereign individuals. And it's hard to see how that church is not just a platform for individual self-expression for those who gather. Because there is no submission. There really is no authority that's being asserted by under-shepherds. And so this really, I think, is that deep issue that, 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 that we all need to, to examine our hearts and lives about. How do we view the church? And when it comes to viewing the church as a vehicle for transformation, it's not just submitting to your elders in cases of discipline. Yes, that's true. But it's submitting to the whole body as a vehicle of transformation. Meaning you're a part of the life of that church. And you submit, and we'll talk about this in the sermon today. You think of Titus chapter 2. Paul's vision for the covenant community is one in which younger generations are under the tutelage of older generations. Well, that means you're submitting to that body. You want to be molded and shaped by the entire body, not just by you know, the, uh, the session or the consistory. Uh, it means that you actually are influenced more by your own session, your own pastors, than those people out there. And that's a big one for us. We have our own version of celebrity pastors, theologians that we all like. You know, we're all in the, our own little camps when it comes to the Reformed world. But how, much, how many of us are actually influenced? How many of us actually go to our own pastors and elders when we have a perplexing question? Instead of just Googling it and finding our, our favorite guys online. So I think that's a big one. How do we view the church? As a platform for individual self-expression or as a vehicle of transformation? I think another issue is, is our feelings in the Christian life. I mean, how many of us, I mean, we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have had those times where we have felt destitute of God, where we feel as if God abandoned us. We feel as if God's not present in our life. And what do we do in those instances? Do we allow God's word and sacraments to trump our emotions? Or do our feelings, do our feelings then make judgments about God's word as being not true for me? This is a big one. Do your feelings stand over God's word or do you allow your God, your God's word to shape your feelings and your emotions? One of the benefits of being a part of a word sacrament oriented church is that when you come to church on the Lord's Day, no matter how you're feeling, if you're feeling as if God has abandoned you, if you're feeling as if God is present or void in your life, it doesn't matter. You come and you hear the gospel proclaimed into you. You know, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice that he doesn't say, Come to me with the right religious experience, and I will give you rest. No, he says, Come. Even if you don't feel my presence, even if you feel as if I abandon you, come. And if you've come to him by faith, you have rest. And let God's authoritative word shape you and stand over your feelings and emotions. Think of the sacraments. When you partake of the bread and wine of communion, just as surely as you can taste the bread, just as surely as you can taste the wine, so surely you can know that you really are united to our risen Lord and Savior who is seated at God's right hand. I mean, think about how hard that is to not only be assured of, but to conceptualize. The Bible says you are right now 
united to Christ, the very humanity of Christ, who is seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father by the Holy Spirit. You who are on earth are united in the most intimate way possible to the very humanity of Christ in heaven. Talk about abstract. How in the world do we have any assurance that that actually is true? Well, can you taste bread? Can you taste wine? So surely as you can experience those physical elements, you can also be assured that that, that, that abstract spiritual reality is also true of you. And so, again, the word and the sacraments are so important, and it's important that we actually submit ourselves to the word and the sacraments. And we don't allow our feelings to stand over God's authoritative word. Um, you know, I think another, an, another issue that, that may, not, may or not be present for us as Reformed Christians, but just, just how we think about God's presence. Um, I, I remember when I was an evangelical, you know, thinking, associating God's presence with a moving worship experience. And by worship, not <laughs> call the worship to benediction, but the praise band. You know, I remember hearing comments by friends when there was a really moving worship set and those, those chords were struck just at the right moment. And, and the, my friends thinking, uh, making comments afterward, boy, God was really present. The same people, if they put, put them in a Reformed church, were you singing a psalm uh, in a musically illiterate congregation and they would come away thinking, boy, that's dead worship. What's, what's going on here? Well, we're allowing our feelings to judge whether or not God is present rather, le- rather than letting God tell us where and when he promises to be among us. And even as Reformed Christians, I think we can easily, um, we, we, we also can, can put too much onus on our emotions or feelings, whether it be in worship, taking the Lord's Supper. Do I have the right feeling and emotion when it comes to rightly partaking the Supper? Even when we're reading our Bibles or doing family devotions, uh, again, we can focus a lot on our, our, our religious or, or, exp- or our feelings or experience in the moment and deem that as, as the indicator of whether or not that exercise was effectual or not. Um, so I, I think that this whole issue of, of feelings and emotions is another big way in which we can be um, complicit. Now, to end, we have just a couple minutes left here. I'd like to just briefly comment on how, you know, Scripture speaks about our identity. You know, Scripture is very clear that we are made in God's image, and as those who are made in God's image, God gave us a telos in life, a purpose in life. And as your own shorter catechism says, you know, man's chief end is to glorify God, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we are made to glorify God. Now, if we buy into the lie of expressive individualism and begin to think that our goal in life is just individual psychological inner happiness, you will have a very difficult time coping with the trials of life. If you buy into the lie of expressive individualism and make your goal inner psychological happiness, you have a very difficult time coping with the trials of life because according to that mindset, The trials of life are only obstacles to you achieving your grand purpose in life. However, if we realize what God says about us as his image bearers, if we realize that our chief end is to glorify God, 
then, then our view of trials, tribulations, the valleys of life are completely transformed. How so? Well, when we come to recognize that God made us to glorify him, then we can view the sufferings of life not as obstacles to our inner psychological happiness, but as opportunities, opportunities that God makes good on to continue to conform us to the image of his son. And so again, when it comes to the trials of life, the valleys of life, what you think your purpose in life is, is foundational to how you're going to view that trial. Is it an obstacle or is it an opportunity? And expressive individualism will always and necessarily look upon the trials of life as obstacles. But the promise we have from our Father is that he makes good on everything, everything that he permits into our life. And he uses everything to further us um, and our relationship with our Lord and Savior, whom we belong to, body and soul, life and in death. So let's pray. Uh, Merciful Father, we thank you for uh, the wisdom of your word. We thank you for who you say we are. We thank you that, as as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, that Christ made all things... um, and that he, he made all things for, for his own glory and purposes. And so uh, we thank you that this is even true about our own creation. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit to, to realize that we were made for your glory. And may that understanding transform how we understand the trials and tribulations and the sufferings that you call us to walk through in this age. We ask all these things in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.